Hello, I'm Paula Jenkins, a transformative life coach and retreat leader. Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy, a podcast that talks about the stories of people following their hearts, finding work that lights them up, and looking at how joy plays a part in their journey. To learn more about this podcast, head on over to jumpstartyourjoy.com. And if you want to find out more about me, you can go to my website at paulajenkinsonline.com. Hello, and welcome to episode six of Jumpstart Your Joy. This week's interview is with Jan Cather Weaver. She is an associate professor emerita of worship and theology and the arts at United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. I think you're going to love this interview. She was one of my very, very favorite professors at Yale Divinity School, and I took the class Theology of Art and Film with her and had just an amazing time. It's wonderful to catch up with her and see what she's been doing, and I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation that we have that takes us from Boy George to the film Lars and the Real Girl, and I think you'll get a lot out of Jan's discussion about her time in Barneveld. Wisconsin, and how she has followed her passion to continue to teach theology and the arts. Today's episode is brought to you by the Dream Into Action Retreat. It's a three-day retreat with over 10 speakers, and it will be all online. If you would like to find out more information, just text the word READY to 66866, and you'll be sent a quick confirmation with lots of information. So now... Without further ado, I take you to the interview with Jan Cather Weaver. So, welcome. Uh, we have today Jan Cather Weaver. Um, she was my professor at Yale Divinity School and is Professor Emeretta of Worship and Theology and the Arts at United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. And it is my distinct honor and joy to have you here today, Jan. Thank you, Paula. It's, it's my honor and joy. To join you. Thank you. Yes. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your time pursuing the ma- your Master's of Divinity at Eden? Sounds like we may have some similarities as we both approach divinity school. I will try to not put too much detail into this uh, <laughs> yeah. because I could talk quite a while about it. But I had, when I was 10 years old, a sense that I wanted to be a minister. I attended the Presbyterian Church in town with my mother and siblings, and I wanted to be the minister. And it's it's a vague feeling at 10 years old, and I was told by my mother that I couldn't because I was a girl. I harbored that for a long time, and then in college I met a few women in the Presbyterian and the United Church of Christ who were ordained. And so after college was sort of lost and really couldn't find a job, and somebody suggested I attend seminary. I had a good recommendation at Eden Seminary, and so I decided to enroll in their MDiv program, and much to the chagrin and um, disappointment and perhaps horror of my family. On my father's part, he felt it was a waste of my talents. On my mother's part, she did not believe that women should be ordained or um, schooled when it came to theological education. And she had never heard of the United Church of Christ, so she thought I had joined the cult. So this was the time where I really deviated from all the expectations I had grown up under of how to conform to the world and how to be a woman in this world and how to be a bright and sensitive woman in this world that I decided that I was going to make my path in the world, regardless of what the expectations were around me. I wasn't cutting off relationships. I was just doing what I knew I had to do. When I entered Eden Theological Seminary, the very first night I felt I had come home. Mm. And my studies there, while incredibly rigorous, and I loved that in a way because my mind had never been challenged to that degree before. It had not been challenged in college or in high school. And I did not know, quite honestly, when I went to seminary, if I would flunk out or not. I had no idea. And I was surprised that I did very well in seminary. I went there simply because I was curious about God. 
I was curious about spirituality. I was curious about faith. I was curious about the vocation of ministry, even though I had not put myself on a path of that vocation. I had spent a lot of my time around ministers and youth ministry when I was involved as a teenager and as a young adult. It was through the the internships, the placements you have in seminary, that I was placed in an Episcopal parish my second year, and I just had this incredible liturgical experience for the first time in my life where I, I really felt an encounter with God in worship and in the Eucharist, and that led me to want to do a year of an internship in, in a UCC parish, and so I went off for a year, and that with its trials and tribulations, it was also very interesting. But it confirmed that I wanted to pursue the ministry. And at that time, I was willing to pursue the parish ministry specifically, though I did not really think that I didn't think beyond just the immediate what's next after school. So I went back my senior year and went through all the procedures to get ready for ordination, much to my surprise, that was never, ever anything I dreamed of when I first went to seminary. I love that. And it's so interesting because as I was sharing right before we got on, my reasoning to go to Yale Divinity was (laughs) supposedly, and I say that now just in hindsight, but supposedly an academic Mm -hmm. event for me. And looking back, obviously, I see it was the universe or God or whatever Mm -hmm. someone's language is for that. But Mm -hmm. it was the God nudge of, well, that's what you think, but go and (laughs) go and see. And interesting, too, that you bring up the Eucharist, because when I think of you and the Eucharist at Marquand, I have just a visual imagery of Eucharist, of you doing it. And that is that no one could ever rival (laughs) the way that you bring down the spirit. Like I, I had to share, but like that, yeah, that's huge for me. And that's my image of, of that chapel is is you. So thank you for that. Uh, Well, I had nothing to do with it. Um, It really (laughs) is getting out of the way and letting the spirit do its thing or creation or however you want to define that is the force of, of life. It really was stepping out of the way and letting, I have very little control over that. My responsibility was to be present and to, I don't quite have the words for it. Vehicle sounds like a car and vessel sounds like you're empty. Yeah. And clay jar is just not poetic enough, but it's, it's, you facilitate, you are a mediator, I guess. Though still that's not correct language, but the Eucharist really was when I was allowed the in the Episcopal Church I served, the bishop allowed me to serve the cup my last Sunday serving there. And it Mm -hmm. still brings tears to my eyes. It was the most powerful experience and brought brought great joy in serving people the cup. And that was how I knew that I had to be ordained so that I could continue to do that mysterious, Mm. participate in that mystery of of the Eucharist. And it is still, of of all my ministry, serving the Eucharist remains my most most joyful experience. Wow. Yeah, and there was something in it. Like, you know what I mean? That that's a memory for me. Clearly you are. You are, I don't know, a light, a light with joy or something <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> when that, when that moment happens. And it's, it's interesting because since, since Yale Divinity School, I've gone on to lead retreats um, <laughs> at a Franciscan retreat center and I'm Lutheran by background, but gosh, I love those. Franciscans. <laughs> and at one point, one of the, one of the priests asked me to help. Um, I actually have preached. <laughs> At their yeah. chapel, which is so crazy, and they let me do it. Of course. And then a blessing of a bunch of the retreat goers, and there was that same moment. I love what you've just said. There was that moment for me where I was taking holy water and blessing each one oh, of them. Powerful. And the, 
the tears. I could not. And they're like, why are you? And I don't know why I'm crying. I'm, I'm so accepting of the whole moment. I felt so present and loving. I couldn't explain it other than kind of what you just said, that it was, that I was a vessel for love, that I was welcoming. This is huge for me, but welcoming them home. And like, I couldn't explain it. And to have been a part of it, even for those 10 minutes. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just mm, life changing. I had a very similar experience also with the imposing of the ashes. I've only done that once in my ministry, and I was stunned with how intimate and moving it was, which was not something I had expected. I expected it to be just sort of a a dead ritual. And um, at this time, I was the UCC church, typically that I, in the Presbyterian church I grew up in, did not impose ashes on Ash Wednesday, and I was working in a UCC church that shared its facilities and was was shared its facilities with the Lutheran Church, and we were one church with two separate congregations of different denominations. And because of the Lutheran influence, we had Eucharist once a month, not once a month, once every other week, but we also had on Ash Wednesday the imposition of the ashes, and I only served this church for a year as an interim, and I I was so stunned that something I had never experienced before on the receiving end could be so moving on the giving end, Mm. and again, it was participating in a mystery I could not understand. Yes, and what happens when we say yes to that mystery is so amazing. Yes. Yes, I'm into saying yes these days. <laughs> Me too. I love it. Yes. I've 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 jokingly said many times in the last year that I am dancing in the space of completely terrified and absolutely excited. <laughs> and I've never been happier. Yes. Well, <laughs> you just hit it. You're you're not afraid to be afraid. Mm, yeah. Um yeah. I th- I think that's the one thing that can really kill joy is letting fear over fear for security and it's not as though I haven't had this fear myself but it's something as I've gotten older I've been able to notice that fear for security fear for certainty uh, can really destroy being in the moment and being joyful and and full of gratitude Mm. well and how do we as people let go of that fear well we have to realize we are not in control of what we're concerned about. Mm -hmm. We are to do what we can do. We are to take responsibility for our lives, create our lives as artfully as possible. And the lives that are lived on the edge and in risk are the ones that are the most full and fulfilling and meaningful. And if we fear meaning, if we fear having significance, having a life of importance, then we'll live in fear. But if we don't fear that, we're able to say to the fear, the fear, fear, you are blocking me from living a full life. Mm -hmm. You're blocking me from having to risk something that is going to be meaningful. And so it's saying yes to risk and being able to talk to your fear and say, I'm going to do this regardless of my fear and not let fear have its power. Mm. I love that. There's so much, I don't want to call it balm. Like there's so much balmy goodness in that, like kind of the permission to live on the edge and in that kind of the, the unexpected spaces, but also being so real to speak to your own fear and, and say, Hey, I see you. You can't hide fear. And I'm calling you out to the light. Because we got to talk. <laughs> we have to talk. And <laughs> you don't have this much control over me. You used to, but you don't anymore. And, yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's living a life for, for adventure. It's, it's being able to say yes to the risks because life, you have to be adventurous in life. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Could we jump to how your time is? In um, sorry, is it Barneveld, Wisconsin? Yes. How did that lead to your PhD in theology and the arts? Well, again, it's a rather a complex story, and 
but I will try to explain it the best that I can. And again, this is part part of life is again participating in mystery because you never know where you are at the moment, what will happen and where that will eventually lead. You just mm-hmm. have to be open to it. So uh, after seminary, I served a rural parish just southwest, 30 miles southwest of Madison, Wisconsin, in Barneveld. And I was called there in 1982 at the age of 27. Exactly two years later, that town was hit by an F5 tornado in the middle of the night, and the mm-hmm. town was leveled. The house, I, the parsonage I was in was destroyed. The church was destroyed. All the churches were destroyed. All the businesses were destroyed. And nine people were killed, including a two-year-old in my parish. Mm. And this is an experience that is off the chart of what you expect to have happen in your life. Yeah. And you go into shock you do the usual things, you do what you need to do. And what happened was, it was the Friday night, early morning of June 8th, 1984. And on June 10th, Sunday, two days from that Friday, was Mm -hmm. Pentecost Sunday. And if you understand tornado and winds and Pentecost Sunday, it was the strange synchronicity. Mm -hmm. And to further that, in the church, the church was destroyed, but the Pentecost window in the church, the stained glass window of Pentecost, was the one main window that was not destroyed. Oh, wow. I mean, and, were, for li- and for listeners, could you explain the significance of Pentecost? Pen- Pentecost um, is, a li- is a Jewish holiday that, the, that in Acts 2 of the Newer Testament Uh, The disciples, including many of the women and the mother of Jesus, gathered with the disciples from around many regions of the world, and they all spoke different languages. And they were gathered for this holy festival in Jerusalem. As the story of Acts goes, suddenly the Spirit of God was upon them, and there was a wind and a flame, and they... They were all filled with the Spirit, and they could understand each other and one another's language. And people wondered if they were drunk, and Peter stood up and said, this is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel, where um, we shall become the community of, of the Spirit and following the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, and that we will have equality among each other, that our, our women will dream dreams, and I'm not getting the scripture right, but it's very poetic, and it's it's really a creation of an equal community, and liturgically, it's said to be the birth of the church. Um, mm-hmm. What what I say is that this event is more an indication of how the Spirit of God continues to call us to be in community with one another, that we Mm -hmm. are not meant to be alone, we cannot be alone, and that we're called to be in community. And we can only remain in community with all of our differences, including language and uh, um, thought processes and ways of being in this world with all of this, without the Holy Spirit being our mediator. Mm. So we were... (laughs) You're welcome. So in... On Pentecost Sunday, we went. We were invited to a local church just down the way in Dodgeville, Wisconsin, to have our Sunday service there. And um, I preached on Isaiah 43 um, spontaneously about how we are we are known by God by name, and that though the fire may, may though we may go through the fire, it won't consume us, and the winds and the seas will not destroy us and that that was the promise of God and that we were called to to remain a church that we may not have a building but we had a church and we were still a community who loved and cared for one another and we would get through this together with the help and the grace of God and the Holy Spirit and the power of life and the numinous and 
with one another, we would be able to to go on having a meaningful life. Mm-hmm. Well, how did this relate to my my PhD studies, you might ask. What mm-hmm. happened was, as I have been a photographer since I was 16 years old, and my photo equipment was in the house that was destroyed, so I didn't have my photo equipment. But one of my parishioners who lived outside of the town had arrived at this church service in Dodgeville with a camera around his neck. And I asked him if I could have the camera. Actually, I didn't ask. I took it mm-hmm. off of him. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I went to Dodge, into Dodgeville and bought gobs of film. And my way of processing what was happening was throughout the cleanup was I was beginning to take pictures. And I found in those pictures, um, the best metaphor I have for it is the hand of God. Mm. I would go into the church and these hymnals were wrecked and ruined and a hymnal would be laying open and pieces of the stained glass would be on it and it would be turned to the page of Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, which mm. has a verse in there, I can't remember it clearly, has a verse in there about um, our help in the stormy blast. Right. And I found that using my camera, I was able to receive what I would like to say were these glimpses of God's hand helping us and giving us promises in that time of of utter destruction and despair. It was that connection of the photographic art with spirituality and with God and, and understanding the theology that I decided that in lieu of going into pastoral counseling, which my advisors had at Eden Seminary had wanted me to go into, I decided I wanted to go into theology and the arts. Not because I felt there was a career there, but because that was where, for lack of a better word, that was my passion. Mm -hmm. I could do no other than that. And there was only one place in the country that had a theology and the arts PhD program, and that was at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California, mm-hmm. which is amazingly much warmer than Wisconsin. Yes, <laughs> it is. I've lived both places. Yes, good. I have too. And um, it took me three more. I stayed three more years with the church as we rebuilt the town, the community. We re- rebuilt the parsonage. We re- built the church we rebuilt the whole community and during those three years I came to grow in my understanding that theology and the arts I had always been interested in the arts and I had a great arts education at my home in the home I grew up in my parents were very much into the music they had given and I was a musician and they had always took us to museums and so I'd always loved the arts, and it just made sense, not to the world. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're going to do what? Go into <laughs> theology and the arts? Why would you want to do that? <laughs> what yes. are, and I was often asked, what are you going to do with that? And it was like, that's not the question. Mm, no, it's not. It's, this is where I feel pulled. Uh-huh. Sure, I could have been a professor of pastoral counseling or gone into private practice providing pastoral counseling, but it would not have fed me mm. in that way. Right. And um, the arts just give me, continued to give me just great life. So it was um, also when I was in Barneveld, I think I have mentioned that I always took my day off, much to the chagrin of the parish. (laughs) Always took my day off. Every Monday was off. Mm -hmm. And unless there was a funeral. And I was always, always there for the funerals whenever the family needed them. But I would always take a day off. And I would go into Madison and I'd go to the theater on the west side of Madison and I would watch movies. And this is how I got into the study of film. Mm. While my PhD program was concentrated, you, my art form was photography and theology. Mm-hmm. I've also done a lot of teaching in, in film and theology. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so my experience in Barneveld led me to to both of those those dimensions. Yeah, I, there's so much that resonates with me in that story. I mean, even down to the what are you going to do with this? When I was in religious studies at UC Santa Barbara, you know, people would ask, "Are you going to be a nun?" <laughs> what? What? Oh my goodness. Like, is that yeah. all the option that we can have? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I know some lovely nuns, but I I don't know why that's the immediate like jump yes. is to like that pull and that draw and like I love what you said about how there was there's really I don't know if this were your exact exact words, but there was nothing else I could do. I I don't know what it is, but I'm gonna figure it out as as I keep going. Um and how lucky for all of us that you said yes and, and just kept going with that kind of the daisy chain of events is amazing. Well, that's life. You have to say yes mm-hmm. to what's mm-hmm. put before you. And I do want to just back up a tad and say, if you want to see the church rocking, go see what the nuns are doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the nuns yes. on the bus are rocking. I Go see the sisters. Go see the religious. Uh, the church is rocking there. Mm-hmm. And... Um, this the sense of I can do no other is is I borrow from uh, Rainer Murray Rilke in his okay. book um, Letter to a Young Poet, and he talks about to this poet he says if you find you can not not write then this is your vocation and every year in my introduction to theology and the arts of an interpretation course we read this book and students are always compelled by that part of one of his letters to this young poet is telling the poet how the poet says how do I know if this is my vocation and Rilke says if you cannot not do it then it is yours mm. I'm going to link that one up in the show notes is what I think I'm supposed to say so I'll have a link um, when we go live with this yeah, that's that's juicy, juicy good stuff right there. <laughs> it's real. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm gonna have to dig into that. I it also reminds me of kind of the the discussion when I decided yes to religious studies, and my dad said, "What are you gonna do with that?" Yes, and I said, "Well, Dad, what did you do with your you know your degree in philosophy?" <laughs> and he just said. Yeah, he was asking me that. And I said I said that and he goes, Touche and he never asked again. I love him. He's so great. Um just that very funny moment. At United Theological Seminary, you taught theology and the arts. And I know I've found quite a bit uh there's syllabus online and you it it seems that you still do some classes with them. Would you like to explain some of the work you've done there and maybe what your ongoing piece is with them? Well, before I retired, uh, I was teaching Theology and the Arts, uh, which is a degree program at United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, not in Dayton, Ohio, of the Twin Cities. They have a degree program in Theology and the Arts, a master's and an MDiv with a concentration in Theology and the Arts, just to plug the school. I also was teaching worship and liturgy. Mm -hmm. And in both of these areas, I I had to teach the core courses and electives. So when it came to theology and the arts, for a while, the president, who is a renowned and well-respected in the field of theology and the arts, Wilson Yates, Dr. Wilson Yates, he was uh, teaching the foundational course in theology and the arts. And then he up and retired. And the dean said to me, well, it's your turn now to teach this course. And I, of course, panicked. I had somebody whisper to me, don't do Wilson, do you. Mm-hmm. And I've had that said to me a couple times, and mm-hmm. I've always found it very liberating. And of course, the person who told me this was not an administrator or a dean or anybody. In this case, it was just a friend or a staff member who just said, do you. So I've designed the course, the core course, and I continue to teach that core course as a professor emerita mm-hmm. every fall for the Theology and the Arts program. And it, I've been teaching it now over 10 years, and it always gets so exciting because 
students bring in their interest in the arts and there's more material and more art forms for us to cover than we possibly have time to at united we have a diversity of theological perspectives so we have somebody who um is who is moved by music such as precious lord and somebody who is Unitarian Universalist, but was too spiritual for them, and so she's now a Buddhist. So we have all of that diversity within this class, looking at art forms from poetry to visual art to um, music to film to photography to theater, looking at this together as a group and applying methods of interpretation. That sounds a little academic, but you know, how do we interpret this without laying our own theological agenda on it? What do, what does art speak to us? What do these forms of art speak to us? So we're non-doctrinal. We basically deal a lot with the human condition, a lot with racism and sexism and classism and genderism and different sexualities. It's a class that is about the theological interpretation of the arts, but we do so much more because when you deal with the arts, you're dealing with the human condition and the way that you are to live in this world. And it's really a fun, exciting course. Yes. <laughs> well, obviously I have a lot of enthusiasm for that. <laughs> and, um, and I continue to teach just in theology and the arts right now. So um, last spring, I taught a course, an online course, theological focus on photography, mm -hmm. which I would have enjoyed more in the classroom because I'm a people person and I really want to connect with the students. But it still turned out to be a meaningful course for all of us. And this spring, I'm teaching another film course. I have a couple film courses. This is a film course that will deal with um, films dealing with racism, class, gender, genderism, and sexualities. When I was full-time, I also taught the core worship course, and I, I don't have official training in the sense of having a PhD in liturgics, but I was able to convince the, the committee that hired me that I could teach the students how to do worship that they might be a little weak on the history of liturgical development, but I felt what was most important was that students knew how to create a worship service that would enable people to encounter God and to renew their relationships with God individually and as a community. And that required that they understood liturgy theologically. Why do we do this? And why do we do this here? Why do we say a prayer here? Why do we sing a hymn here? Why do we read scripture here? Why do we read just scripture? How do we serve Eucharist? What are the various ways of serving Eucharist? And getting them to think theologically about all those questions. And it was always uh, a great course to teach, always very demanding. And because you had a diversity of students, who you, you would have um, students who were in the arts concentration at the time they were required to take the worship course, who didn't understand why they were re required to take the worship course until they realized that liturgy was art, mm, that yeah. it's a work of art, that it, this isn't about teaching you necessarily how to get up and front of people and lead worship this is this is another form of art for you and there are also liturgical arts that can be part of not just tagged onto but integral parts of the liturgy so and then we deal we dealt a lot with language and expansive language and what language do we use what language shall we borrow as brian wren says it was quite a teaching career for about 11 years where I was off teaching worship and off teaching theology and the arts. And they also had me teaching uh, field placement for the first year um, internships. I was the the person um, and eventually this became a, a co-teacher situation where I was working with students when they were first experiencing internships in their whole the whole issue of am I adequate enough 
um, am I, can I do this? What is my vocation? Came up, and that was in some ways some of my more joyful courses because I really got to deal less with academics and more with people really struggling to find their identity in the ministry. Right. And they knew and felt the calling, but then, yeah, once you've said yes to that, there's that whole thing that comes up, like you said, of am I good enough? The imposter syndrome maybe comes up, like who am I to do this work? And I think um, there's something about that that comes up both in life coach training, which is interesting, but also then in any client work I've done is that that whole thing about feeling who am I to be coaching someone? And well, there's, there's lots of good reasons. Yeah. When you dig deep, you, you realize, okay, well, there's a whole, you know, my, my whole life, in fact, has led up to this. So who am I, who am I to not <laughs> coach people? Exactly. Yeah. I, I really um, agree with you. Who are you not? You're, yeah. yeah, this is your calling. Yeah. Well, and isn't that interesting, the crossroads of calling and, and then questioning it like that's kind of a a very sweet and vulnerable space to be and it happens more than just once in your life it it happens throughout your vocation i have Mm. found in my experience that finding you may find that you are called but there continue continues to remain the question sometimes of in what form will this call take and you have to be willing to enter again that limited space where it's it's unknown. You're in in between, so that something new can grow out of of, mm-hmm. of what you've been doing. It's much like Jacob. The night he's wrestling with the stranger, he's in an in between spot. He's about to cross the river. He doesn't know what Esau is going to do. His brother that he stole. Um, his father's blessing from and he's in this in-between place and we wrestle with the stranger and sometimes Mm -hmm. that's us sometimes it's the spirit sometimes it's God sometimes it's um, our nightmares in the Christian text it reads and the stranger or the angel touched Jacob's hip in the Jewish text it's wrenched and mm-hmm. and sometimes those periods are quite wrenching and then we think we are have gone on the wrong path because we're having this experience that can be quite painful and that it does not necessarily mean that it's the wrong path it's just that we it, it's a struggle and we have to wrestle but we have to remember after he was he came out wounded from this struggle and wounded i use lightly he was blessed mm-hmm. and he received right. a new name now, if there isn't something powerful about that story for a life metaphor, I'm not sure what is. It's just yeah. a really powerful story. It is. I mean, not nearly as powerful, but <laughs> along the same lines, Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art, I don't know if you know it, but talks about how the artist always runs into resistance and that oftentimes it's when you hit resistance, you're actually on the right path. And that's how you know, in some ways, that yes. you're, yeah, on the right path. So I, those two dovetail. They do just beautifully. Yeah, I really agree. We, of course, met at Yale, and one of my favorite classes was art and film and religion. And I'm not sure if that was the title, but <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah, <laughs> it was quite some time ago. It was. Um, but I remember your paper. Aw, thank you. It was my favorite paper to ever write, I think, ever, and for the audience. It was about Boy George. Um, the, his album, actually, Cheapness and Beauty, was the inspiration, where he talks about feeling like the other and beautifully expressing through lyrics, especially, I think, in the song Ill Adore and the song Cheapness and Beauty, how how it feels to be the other, but how there is ultimate acceptance and that in God's eyes, we are all created just the way that he and he, God, I don't want to use exclusive language, but that God intended us. But then also looking at Torch Song Trilogy, the film, and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the film. Oh, yes. So I'll link those up for people that are curious. Um, but I felt that that was such a blessing for there to be a space to explore those themes and be accepted with whatever 
whatever it was we wanted to explore. So thank you for creating that space for us, Jan. It was unlike anything I had ever experienced. I didn't know I was creating such a space. Quite honestly, it was, why not? Um, I, <laughs> I've never been a student at Yale, so I don't know how other, I think other professors also create their own space, but I was delighted to create this space. And for some reason, your paper has stuck with me. And I can say, Paula, boy, George. And, <laughs> and I remember that it, it was one of those really exploratory, edgy, risky, let's see if this works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't matter, papers. And, and that paper, sort of, and the process of writing it, to me, and of reading it, was sort of much like life. It's, it's like, let's risk and see and explore and expand. Mm. And if nothing comes out of this, then we've lost nothing. Yes. Did I ever give you your paperback? I think so. I think I have it. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I think uh, I, I, I ran across it, I can't tell how many years ago, but I must have made a copy of it. Yeah. yeah. I'll go look. I, it's on a floppy disk somewhere, I'm sure. Floppy, <laughs> one of those big ones. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? But yeah, I mean, and I think the inspiration there, and it's interesting, this gets very kind of meta and reflective back and forth. But as I was saying before we started recording, I got to see Boy George with my sister um, last weekend, which would be a while ago when, when we go live with this. But he said this beautiful thing about, I believe it was in reference to David Bowie, that as, as he was growing up, uh, a little George O'Dowd, um, yes. <laughs> he was a huge fan of, of Bowie mm -hmm. and Ziggy Stardust and all of that. And interestingly, I had, as a child, been very interested in David Bowie. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I had no idea this inspired you. But he said there was something about the first time he saw Bowie. And he said, my heart said, yes, there are more people like me. I'm not the only one. Oh. Um, which was just, yeah, just gorgeous. And then he also said, I hope from my heart that culture club could be that for some of you before there was a lot of, you know, understanding about what it meant to be someone different. Mm -hmm. I hope those posters, mm -hmm. if you had them in your room were confirmation that you are not the only one. That's and powerful. yeah, especially, <laughs> and for him, yeah, especially in the mid nineties. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Thanks. So that I mean, I think there's something in his music, at least for me, that was so affirming of whoever you are is just who you're meant to be. And, and so, I, you know, I encourage anybody who's questioning that to go and listen and read his book. Like he's he's more than meets the eye for sure. <laughs> he's he's much more than what media paints of yeah. him. Yeah. The media palette of him is very thin. Yes. Yes. And Illidor, that the mother holds the her, the hand of her dying son. That whole thing about that, about how this child was misunderstood and, and presumably, uh, I, I'm assuming an AIDS patient, but that's never, I don't think specifically said, but of the time that that would have mm -hmm. been something that a family went through and that he was singing a love ballad about mm -hmm. it. Just the acceptance and the love and the, yeah, that's just, I mean, in my own opinion, well, no, I think it's heaven sent, you know, like, mm -hmm. well, just beautiful. I, I, and I would say prophetic in that he was saying to love those who are not lovable is is prophetic, especially in 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 America, especially during the AIDS situation where people were afraid to let people with HIV in their churches or take communion or sit from the same Eucharist chalice mm -hmm. and and or hold their hand or touch them and he was prophetic in that it wasn't the church that was saying hold these hold the hand and love these people it was it was boy george who had that incredible hospitality about him mm. and in some ways um we have to look for the prophets outside of the walls of the church yes there are some inside the inside i'd say walls Martin Luther King is a, is a sense of a prophet within a church, but um, the words of the prophet are written on written on the subway walls and the tenement halls. Is Paul mm -hmm. Simon, 
and mm-hmm. sound of silence. And I've I've always been impressed that has stayed with me that if I want to see where the spirit is happening, I need to go outside and walk the subways and walk the walk the tenements. Yeah, I think you're right. Being in the thick of or just in the midst of humanity is the important piece. And and unless we can be there and sit in the midst of it and take in all the messages, we're, we're really not doing ourselves a service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we're cutting ourselves off from one of, one of the greatest gifts of life, mm-hmm. which is diversity and uh, and experience that we never expected to experience. If we right. if we really try to contain our world to experiences that we're comfortable with, well, we have to have some of those. But if we're willing to risk and have experiences we're uncomfortable with we will experience a much mean, more meaningful and significant life. Mm-hmm. Even just to use Ilador, the song again, like I think there's something so like you're saying prophetic that if, cause he's talking about how people are afraid and, and the anger and tears don't take the pain away. And if we're afraid, we don't go near. And, and obviously this one person is much more of a metaphor for fear perhaps, or what the unknown or the other, but his last words of that song are you were hurt by love, but you still came right back for more mm-hmm. Illador. Oh, that's just beautiful. Yeah. Oh, boy, George. Oh, boy, George. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, we had also talked a little bit about how I saw Lars and the real girl on your syllabus, and I was drawn to rewatch that. My dad had given it to me, and mm-hmm. I, I don't think I had ever, I don't think I had thought about the message acceptance and it, it is unconditional love that are brought up in this, this movie. Strangely enough, with Ryan Gosling, um, mm-hmm. yes, <laughs> um, he's such a, you know, stereotypically like the ladies' man now that this just seems like it's so unusual of a role for him. And thank God he did it. Yes, it's, it's amazing and needed to be said. And although we never knew it did, <laughs> like, but what is your take on Lars? And it's Bianca. It's his girlfriend, right? Yes. I, I remember talking to a student before my film class, and I was mentioning to him that I was have a study, Lars and the Real Girl. And he said, you know, I'm not sure I liked that film because it was so unrealistic. Mm. And and I said, well, I don't think it's meant to be realistic as much as it's meant to be about what the vision of God would be, of how we would really be for one another. And that as a community for deep healing to happen for someone the community has to be in, have this acceptance and hospitality for somebody to heal and mm. that acceptance and hospitality isn't tolerance it's love and that's the vision of god where we are we're healed and that which divides us are mended um be it racism be it um social isolation that the vision of God is that we are to be in meaningful relationships with one another and the community is responsible to make sure that happens. Yes. And I didn't get a chance to review the film this week, but what, what has, what has always stayed with me since my first viewing of the film was this is a glimpse of what the kingdom, the realm, the vision of God looks like. Mm. And no, it's not realistic, but mm. but that's exactly why it has to become our reality because it's not practical. It's not the world's realistic. It has to become the realism, the realisticness of those of us who who wish for a better world and for people to be healed and for communities to be healed. Yes. There is something so, I'll use the word magical, although that doesn't even encapsulate it, but something so magical about the way the town accepts Lars's girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And for the audience, I don't know if we should tell the spoiler, but basically (laughs) spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah. Spoiler alert. But I think it's even on the poster. She's not, She's not a human girl. She's a, a plastic doll, a life-size doll. And 
the way that the community accepts her and the fact that Lars has a relationship, they are able to completely dismiss the fact that she is a doll. No one, I think, even except outside of his, you know, outside of his earshot, I think the, his brother and and his wife say something like, but it's a plastic doll. But that's the only time that anyone, I think, says anything about why we would not accept mm-hmm. this person into our midst. And then it's just utter love that this is someone that someone has brought to us and someone they care about. And so we're going to accept that. Beautifully said. Yes, very much. They loved Lars. And if this was somebody or something or something that to which he was devoted in which he was, they would devote their lives mm-hmm. to her yeah. finding more fulfillment and meaning in life. Yes. And yes. by that process, Lars begins to find and expand meaning and and no longer shy away from touch and no longer feel socially isolated and can come into a relationship with a human being that he is equally devoted to only after the death of Bianca. Right. And I feel like there's that really powerful moment when his brother, so his sister-in-law is crying out in the, in the yard at Lars and he's saying it's hard. And she's, she cries back at him. It's hard for all of us, but we love you. Mm-hmm. And there's just something, yeah. I mean, it gives me goosebumps just even thinking about it now. Like there's something about it. Like we're not going to even talk about why it's hard and the acknowledgement in the moment that every relationship is hard, but we get through it and we we continue on with that relationship because we because of love. And and I was just like that one moment was like so pivotal to me and I just yeah, soak it up. <laughs> that that is a powerful moment because typically anger will drive people apart and yet mm-hmm. and this is a scene where truth is spoken. By mm-hmm. both parties, and his sister-in-law says, "We do this because we love you." And I'm not sure he really fathomed that until that moment, right? Given his early childhood, right, right, and that love is so powerful that it sometimes and should mean that we speak the truth to each other and we still accept each other, and we have to. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> I love this movie. <laughs> It's a great movie. I, I needed to re-see it. I just really did. And I encourage anyone who's listening, go go watch. Yes. Lars um, and the Real Girl. L-A-R-S. So what is, what's next for, for you, Jan? What were you, were you going, you said you'll be teaching some more courses. Will they be online? Can people get to them? Or, or how are you moving forward with your ministry? I basically am at a point in my life where I just have to wait and see. I'm continuing to want to teach uh, as I have continued to do at United two courses a year mm-hmm. and some of those might be online. They definitely will also be in the classroom, which is really my medium of teaching. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I can't, if you have said, what will you be doing five years from now? I, I would like to be able to say the same thing I'm doing today and still enjoying it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Um, life changes very quickly. Um, and you have to be able to be ready for those changes. So uh, in some ways, I feel I'm preparing to be ready. For whatever is next. For whatever is next. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to finding out what it is. And, and hopefully, if you do the photography class again, I I very much hope that I am in a place where I have the time to do it because I think that would be a blessing and a joy to be a part of it. Well, it'd be a blessing and a joy to have you as part of it. <laughs> it, it, it. We were able, though it was an online class, we spoke once a week over um, an internet program and the online discussions were really good. Mm-hmm. It's nice when that can happen. I, I think, and and I know actually from my own life coach program, um, courageous coaching training program. If, if I plug it a little there, <laughs> yes. 
I think it it matters so much about the person that's leading and their openness to the media. I mean, sorry, the medium um, and new media. If you embrace it, it becomes this really it's enabling tool and it's it can be for amazing good. So I'm sure it had a lot to do with how you embraced it. I think we all embraced it. I just told everybody mm-hmm. we are going to have fun. Don't worry about your photographs. Just mm-hmm. receive photographs as often as you can, every day if you can, which is exhausting. But don't worry about their quality and share them with us joyfully. And don't worry about critique. Um, get into this, the idea of seeing the world in a, in a way where it's a gift. And the photos that you receive are gifts. And that you, and that you are able to uh, be able to to notice in these photos something you had never expected and that is a gift that you cannot plan a photograph you can go through all the machinations of f-stop and app and and shutter speed and film speed and whatever and still your photograph will not be what you expected it to be it may be nothing what you expected and be glorious and you go where did that come from and that's where I believe that you have the spirit or, or the divine and the holy communicating with you. And there is something way beyond just what we can comprehend in receiving that gift. Yes. And what more can be said? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, we can jump into our, the final questions. Um, okay. If someone listening, and there's two of them, but the first one is, if someone listening has a big dream about how they could change or make a change in the world, what advice would you give them about bringing that dream into action? Well, I'm not very good on advice giving. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but I get this from Garrison Keillor, and he wouldn't phrase uh-huh. it this way, but Garrison Keillor, Prairie Home Companion, mm-hmm. is to do what is set before you. To open your eyes, there is always something that needs to be done or completed or fulfilled. And it's a lot like photography. You can get so used to your surroundings, you, you, don't, you don't see anything of interest to photograph until you really begin to look intently and you begin to see lines and shapes and patterns. And you receive photographs of your environment and you begin to see your house, for instance, in a, in a very different way than, uh, than you had before you started really deeply perceiving. So see what is set before you. What are your circumstances that you're in? Is there not something right in your corner of the world right there that you can be a part of changing? If you want to change the world, go get a Nobel Peace Prize. If you want to be able to change people's lives, just look at what is set before you. Mm-hmm. That, that is good stuff. Do you or can you think of three ways that you could jumpstart joy in your own life, in the world, or in other people's lives? Radical gratitude. Yes. And radical acceptance. Mm-hmm. And that really means really radically accepting the present and then radical hospitality to everyone 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 the sibling that bugs you the the neighbor that drives you crazy the prisoner the the, the professor the the student um because of their sexuality or their class or their mannerisms whatever but radical hospitality to everyone and that doesn't mean we have no boundaries but it does mean that we are not judging people Mm. amen (laughs) that's a lot to soak in I love it thank Thank you you from the bottom of my heart thank you Um, Paula yeah and personally too just for the space like I said that you opened up for those people who have been in, in your classes and, and intersected with you in any way. I just, I love what you've opened up and the, the conversations that you 
welcome. So thank you for being just a loving and generous force. Um, Bless you. It's really an honor. <laughs> thank you. That's very kind. Okay. Thank you, Paula, and, and yeah. blessings for your ministry. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I hope you really enjoyed that interview with Jan. Next week, I have another interview lined up, and it is with my friend, Earl Rivard. He is a musician, and he has recorded three CDs. We talk about how he and I have led retreats together for the last decade, and about what jumpstarts his joy. So I hope you'll come on back next week for that interview as well. And until then, I hope that your world is filled with so much joy.